some of you may be familiar with a children's book that is one of my favorites. Read all of these voraciously as a child when I was learning to read. It's a series called Frog and Toad. Anybody read Frog and Toad books? My people. My people. Uh, this was one of my favorites as a kid. I uh, learned to read with Frog and Toad, and uh, it, it does actually impinge, it has to do with what we're going to talk about today. Uh, there's a cool little story in here called Cookies. I thought about this because somebody handed me about two, two dozen Oreo cookies Wednesday, and they were mostly gone in about three hours. <coughs> but I figured I'd tell you Frog and Toad's story and not mine. Toad baked some cookies. These cookies smell very good, said Toad. He ate one, and they taste even better. So he ran to Frog's house. Frog, Frog, cried Toad. Taste these cookies that I have made. Frog ate one of the cookies. These are the best cookies I have ever eaten, said Frog. Frog and Toad ate many cookies, one after another. You know, Toad, said Frog with his mouth full, I think we should stop eating. We will soon be sick. You are right, said Toad. Let us eat one last cookie and then we will stop. Famous last words. Frog and Toad ate one last cookie and there were many cookies left in the bowl. Frog, said Toad, let us eat one very last cookie and then we will stop. Frog and Toad ate one very last cookie. We must stop eating, cried Toad as he ate another. Yes, said Frog, reaching for a cookie. We need willpower. What is willpower, asked Toad. Willpower is trying hard not to do something that you really want to do, said Frog. You mean like trying not to eat all these cookies, asked Toad. Right, said Frog. So Frog put the cookies in a box. There, he said, now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. So Frog tied some string around the box. There, he said, now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can cut the string and open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. So Frog got a ladder, put the box up on a high shelf and said, there, now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can climb the ladder and take the box down from the shelf and cut the string and open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. So Frog climbed the ladder, took the box down from the shelf, cut the string, opened the box, ran outside, took the box, and shouted in a loud voice, saying, Hey, birds, here are cookies! Birds came from everywhere. They picked up all the cookies in their beaks and flew away. Now we have no more cookies to eat. Not even one, said Toad sadly. Yes, said Frog but we have lots and lots of willpower. <laughs> Toad said, you can keep all your willpower, frog. I'm going to go home and I'm going to bake a cake. <laughs> Friends, many in our churches, many perhaps in these pews today, uh, we come to church week after week for spiritual encouragement, for accountability, to hear from the Word of God about who we are and how to enjoy life and how to live. Many of us come week after week after week only to leave 
this place. And when you think, when you think, no one's looking. So go off and bake a little cake on the side. For far too many of us, friends, there is a massive disconnect between our public lives and our private lives. Between what we do and say here in this context among people on Sunday morning when we're smiling and shaking hands and playing the I love Jesus wear the t-shirt game which can be faked a massive disconnect between our public lives and our private lives between what we do and say here and what we do and we say elsewhere perhaps in those places where nobody's around where nobody's looking where you feel like accountability isn't there and listen well friends listen well if you think your cake baking on the side isn't hurting anyone else, not only are you wrong, you are flat out deceived. Flat out deceived. And if this is you, then you are stuck. You are, you're stuck. You don't know how to get out The wheels are still turning. You're not making forward progress. And you're stuck in this place where if you let it continue, it will, because this is what sexual sin does, it will destroy your heart. It will destroy your heart and it will ruin your family, your relationships. It will grow to become this idol of yourself at which you worship. And if we think for a moment, friends, those of us who have grown up in this context, who some of us perhaps have been in these pews most of our lives, if we've grown up in this place uh, of being in church week after week after week, and if we think that we shouldn't be talking about this in church, or you'd rather keep your head in the sand about this because you don't want to have to confront it, then, then what that really is functionally is turning a blind eye to the havoc that sexual sin can wreak in the lives of people. If it's not you, it's someone around you, I promise. The evil one comes as an angel of light. Scripture calls the evil one an angel of light because it looks harmless. In fact, it even looks good. Really good. It seems like it might even be helpful at times. Like it'll make us happy, but friends, it will destroy. It'll destroy you from the inside out. And here's why this is this is something we have to talk about. Whether this is you, it's someone you know, it's someone in your family, could be your own kids. This issue of sexual sin is ravaging families. Because the evil one has easy access. Easy, easy access. We're going to watch a video here for just a second. We're going to watch a video here for just a second.
just listen to these to these statistics. <clears throat> One in five total web searches worldwide is a search for explicit explicit sexual content or pornography. A recent Google Trends analysis indicated that searches for the phrase teen porn, illegal underage pornography, more than tripled from 25 to 2013. Total searches for teen-related porn are approximately one-third of total daily searches for pornographic websites. Almost 70% of men and 20% of women, the entire population, are viewing pornography at least one time per week on average. Some of you today know what we're talking about. 70% of men and almost 20% of women are viewing pornography at least one time per week on average. And in the last five years, we're not just going to talk about online porn only. It just happens to be the newest and, and most rampant uh, problem. Uh, we are talking about all forms of sexual immorality. We'll talk about that in a little bit here later. In the last five years, the number of women having an affair outside of marriage has increased 40%. Roughly two-thirds of young men and one-half of young women agree that viewing pornography is acceptable. A majority of teens, almost 60%, don't think posting photos or other personal information on social networking sites is unsafe. 22% of teen girls have sent semi-nude or nude photos over the phone to someone else. Almost 20% of teen boys have done the same. A study published in 1989 found that by the age of 15, 92% of boys had looked at a Playboy magazine. Close to 100% of boys by the age of 18 have seen and been involved with online, online pornography. Today is Super Bowl. Billions of dollars are going to be created by this one game today. Porn revenue is larger than all the combined revenues of all professional football, baseball, and basketball franchises. The Attorney General's Commission on Pornography reported that the largest group of consumers of pornography was boys below the age of 18. Largest group of consumers. These lists of statistics go on and on and on and on. Dozens of children's characters, Pokemon, things like that, are intentionally linked by porn producers to lure in the children. You, 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 can't, you can't pretend anymore that this is not a problem that the body of Christ has to do something about. You cannot keep your head in the sand about this issue. To do so is to functionally say, Hey, evil one, take my child. Do you, you, you think that I'm being too strong about that? 80% of parents self-report that they have no idea how to monitor their kids' online activities. Twenty-three percent of parents actually have rules about what their kids can do on, on the computer. I could go on and on and on and on. Something that used to be kept hidden, 
culturally is now considered the norm. It's talked about and laughed about on nighttime television as if it's normal. Something that should make us blush is now something that's joked about. Something's wrong with you now. Something's wrong with you now if you have not uh, viewed pornography, considered it acceptable and normal, uh, and and something's wrong with you if you uh, have not had sex outside of the context of marriage before you're married. Something's wrong with you. As a young adult, cohabitation is almost the norm. How does something like this change? How does something like this change? We're going to do two weeks on this. Next week is grow up. This week is wake up. We wake up to the problem that's staring us in the face instead of keeping our heads in the sand, telling ourselves it's not a problem, hoping it goes away, pretending that somebody else will deal with it. Somebody else is dealing with it. And just because you don't want to deal with it doesn't mean the problem will go away. In fact, we will contribute to the problem if we act like God hasn't raised us for this time to be people who care about keeping sacred what He said is sacred, which is sexual intimacy within the bounds of a loving relationship between a man and a woman within marriage. In all change, there are two things. Wake up and grow up. We wake up, usually precipitated by a crisis. We, we realize that the pain of continuing the behavior is worse than the pleasure found in stopping it. It's usually a crisis. And I promise you, promise you, if it hasn't been a crisis yet for you in some way, yet it will be, it will be. Sexual sin is rampant. And all the studies show that we are not nearly as different as you think. Look them up. Oh, we Christians, it's different for us. No, No, it's actually not. It's really not. The second part of it is a process of health and of healing and of a proactive relationship with God that is intentionally, intentionally putting up Uh, boundaries in your life and in your marriage and in your family. We must experience that that in Christ, uh, the pleasure of stopping destructive behaviors, the pleasure of stopping destructive behaviors in a relationship with Christ far exceeds the pain of continuing those behaviors. We'll talk about that a lot next week. Uh, Some proactive things that you can do in a relationship with God, because listen, you cannot do this on your own. This is going to take a community of people. It's going to take a relationship with God. You, you will not beat your sexual sin by yourself. It's not going to happen. And we'll define sexual sin, the parameters of it, in a little bit here. In order to wake up, we have to come to terms with reality. Reckon with the situation when it comes to sexual sin. And there are four steps we're going to talk about today that will help us realize, help us realize today that the pain of continuing the behavior the pain of continuing the behavior is worse than the pleasure found in stopping it. Number one, we must admit, we must admit, first and foremost, that sexual sin is a sin against God. If you have a chance, turn to uh, Genesis 39. 
if you have a Bible handy with you. Genesis 39, 6 through 10, we're going to look at the life of Joseph here for just a couple minutes, and then we'll look at the life of Samson uh, next. Genesis 39, 6 through 10, helps us learn this truth about sexual sin being a sin against God. Verse 6, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Young man, handsome in form and appearance, had all of the hormones of a young man who's handsome and form and appearance. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance in verse 7. After a time, his master's wife, after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. Now, I press pause for a second here. Joseph's master here was, was Potiphar, and Potiphar was the captain of the guard for the Pharaoh. So this is a, like a mega important, this is a real important dude that uh, Joseph is in charge of in terms of his house. He had put Joseph in charge of his household and of everything in his household. So Joseph had an extremely important position. It said, verse 7, she cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, now listen, this is something we have to think about, be ready for. Before you get into the situation, this is what happens. This is what happens with us with sin. We're not ready for it. We haven't thought about it. We think this is going to be somebody else. We're not prepared for the context and the situation. You think about this beforehand, so when you're there next time, you say something like Joseph said, because he, no, he knows, he understands what this is, what the stakes are. Verse 8, but he refused and said to his master's wife, this is a great response, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. Joseph has a sense of his responsibility to Potiphar. He has a sense of his responsibility to Potiphar because he has a sense of his, of his responsibility to God. Work as unto the Lord and not for men. Colossians 3, 17 and 23. Work with all your heart as for the Lord, not for men. So, so Joseph understood that being in this context was for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. He didn't call it the gospel then, but he knew. He knew that his participation in this responsibility was a participation in what God was doing in the world. And so he understood the, he understood the weight of the matter. He said, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except this one thing, except you, because you are his wife. Joseph knew God had put him here with great responsibility for a greater purpose, and his response demonstrates that. Verse 9, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin? What does it say? Two words, against Potiphar? No, against God. Against myself? It's only going to hurt me? Not going to hurt anybody else? No, against God. We must realize, first and foremost, that sexual sin is a sin against God. And to live as if, to live as if that is not the case is to live in your heart and your mind as if there is no God and you don't have faith in a God who is perfect and holy and sinless and creator of the universe who deserves all glory and praise and deserves our very best to him, a life offered to him. That's what he deserves. And to live as if sexual sin is not something that's a sin against God is to pretend to live like there is no God. 
Well, isn't all sin a sin against God? Of course all sin is a sin against God. But we have this sort of perverse, this mistaken notion that sexual sin is somehow different uh, because you know, we rationalize it in a whole bunch of different ways. We have six things we'll talk about later that are rationalizing terms. Uh, we, we think, we have this mistaken notion that sexual sin is not going to affect somebody else a whole lot. It's you know, something that we keep within ourselves. 1 Corinthians 6.18, you're going to look this up later if you're taking notes. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Joseph fled. He ran off and, and Potiphar's wife was holding his garment, his coat there. He did whatever he had to do to get away from the situation. He fled from sexual immorality. And that, that phrase, sexual immorality, there in 1 Corinthians 6 and a bunch of other places in the New Testament uh, is attested uh, time and time and time again in the New Testament to mean, uh, it's the word porneia. It's a general, an overarching term for all sexual sin that takes place outside the bounds of, of marriage outside the bounds Genesis 2:24 of God making man and woman for marriage 1 Corinthians 6 says flee from sexual immorality every other sin a person commits every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body if i lie or i cheat or i'm dishonest that's a sin that's outside the body but sexual sin has this staying power and destructive consequence because it takes two to tango. And, and it's right here. Sexual sin. It's me. Flesh. Made by Creator God for His purposes. Which turns us into our own idols. That's what sexual sin does. It turns us into our own idols. It's us saying my pleasure is what matters most physically. My, 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 getting my emotional warm fuzzies met through my body, through my flesh, is my number one, pri- it's my idol, I'm me. I, I am the idol. And one of the saddest parts of this is, what we'll talk about here with Samson in just a second here, it is especially destructive because that sexual sin is a sin against our own body and against God. And it keeps us from being able to hear God clearly. It's, it's like saying that sexual sin damages our receptors so we begin to get kind of a fuzzy signal. We have a harder time hearing from God and distinguishing between truth and lie. Joseph knew this. <laughs> Joseph knew this, that sexual sin was something to flee from. He knows it's especially damaging. And we know this, verse 10, because Potiphar's wife kept going after Joseph, verse 10, and she spoke to Joseph day after day. He would not listen to her to lie beside her to be with her. What sustained Joseph's resolve was his faithfulness, not just to Potiphar, but to God. Sexual sin is always ultimately against God, as all sin is. But we, mess, we, we mustn't keep our heads in the sand thinking that, that it's not going to hurt somebody else, that, that I deserve this, that, that you know, nobody else has the situation I have in life that justifies me doing something. We'll get to those a little bit later here. Sexual sin is always ultimately against God. Number two, 
we must acknowledge the primary consequence of our sexual sin, which is hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. Judges 13, I'm sorry, 16, if you haven't turned there yet. Judges 16. We're going to fly through some of the life of Samson here. Uh, Judges 13 to 16, those four chapters encompass the life of Samson. We don't have time to unpack all of it, but we're going to look here in chapter 16. What we need to know before we jump in is that Samson was raised up by God to oppose the Philistines. That's the key to, to all this here. Samson was raised up by God to oppose the Philistines. That was his mission. That's why God sent him as judge. Uh, the Old Testament people of God had just come out of the promised land, and he was going to lead them, continue to lead them against the Philistines, and so God gave him great physical strength. Most of the Bible scholars think that he probably wasn't any some you know big, huge, fancy guy, uh, you know, because it would have been just like God to have this kind of normal-looking guy have just this uh, extraordinary strength. So God gave him this strength, as we all know from our flannel graph years. Follow along in Judges 16. Samson, verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. Good start here, Samson. Verse 1. Samson goes to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute and went into her. The Bible doesn't just kind of accidentally mention this at the beginning. It says at the beginning of this account because he's saying, this is the kind of guy we're dealing with here. Jump down to verse 4 there. Verse 4, Judges 16, 4. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. This is at least woman number 3 for Samson. And there are clues in the text before this uh, that, that it was likely he had more than that. And his reputation preceded him. Uh, a couple other examples of that earlier on. His reputation preceded him by now. Verse 5, the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him. Use sex to defeat him. They knew exactly where to strike Samson. They knew exactly where to strike to defeat him. They knew that the only way they could defeat his physical strength was through his moral weakness. The picture of how the evil one infiltrates. The lords of the Philistines came up to her, verse 5, and said, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies. And by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And he will give each of you 1,100 pieces, each of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, verse 6, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that, I could, that, that, that one could subdue you. So Samson said to her, verse 7, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Now, now why wouldn't he just plain tell her he's not going to tell her and then not tell her? I mean, it sounds simple, but I mean, if you know who you are and what your mission is and who God made you to be and why you're there, say what you know is the good and right thing to say and be a man who stands up for the mission of God even to the exclusion of your own spouse. Oh, you should listen to your spouse. Happy, happy wife, happy life. Either direction, either direction. If your spouse is calling you to things that are against the mission of God, then you, you sit there and you go, you're not listening. Something is wrong in your relationship with God. Because you're calling me, you're calling me 
to a spiritual adulthood. Many people in their marriages and homes are manipulating with that kind of ugliness all over the place. So she manipulates him. Verse 8, the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. You'd think, you'd think that one time of her leading the enemy to your own home to defeat you would have been warning enough. But Samson is more about sex than smarts. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Are you hearing what I'm saying? When your own idol is, is your physical pleasure and, and getting your emotional warm fuzzies, when that's your own idol, you become stupid. Verse 11, he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. He's playing the game with her. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, and the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arm like a thread. Second time, you'd think that'd be another warning. Here comes the third time that should have been warning. Verse 13, then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. She's manipulating, he's playing long. He said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head, wove them into the web, she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep, pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. Sexual sin makes you dumb. Makes your hard heart, your brain, dead. Being delusionally in love with your own pleasure will kill you. I'm not just being funny. It will kill you. Verse 17. He told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she knew it. She sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, This is the real deal. Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her, brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees. She called the man, had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. He woke from his sleep, thinking his physical strength was there and was the most important thing about him. He said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. And these next words are some of the saddest words in the Old Testament. He did not know that the Lord had left him. He did not know that the Lord had left him. He had lost the Lord's blessing. He lost a, a sense of his mission and purpose. He lost sight what God had called him to do. He gave in to the lie that it was his physical strength that mattered. That was just the tool God gave him. That was just the tool God gave him to make his integrity that wasn't there work. 
He had no personal vision for carrying out what God had for him because he was in love with his own pleasure. Listen, friends, sexual sin is the ultimate self-idolatry. And idolatry of self deafens us to hearing from God. It hardens our hearts, hearts that are meant to be soft, to hear what God has to tell us about who we are and what our purpose in life is. 1 Timothy 4 speaks of uh, those who lie. It says they have a seared conscience. You, you can't get through that thick skull because it's fried. It's fried by sin. Sexual sin takes you to that place. We must stop. Number three, rationalizing our sin. Mistakes are your soul. <laughs> what hangs in the balance is too important for us to rationalize our way into temporary physical pleasure. I'm just going to basically list these kind of common, and these are practical rationalizations. These are the things we say to ourselves when we're trying to convince ourselves that we are justified in our sin. This applies to everything, but also to sexual sin. We say, I don't care. I flat out don't care what this will do to me. This is what the fool says. The fool knows, fool knows it's wrong and does it anyway. He says, I, I don't care. We also say, I deserve this. I deserve this. I've had a long, hard day. I've had a long week. I deserve, I deserve to go bake a cake on the side because my wife, my wife doesn't seek my attention enough. I deserve to go have a little affair on the side because my husband doesn't meet my needs. I deserve this. Third one, it's my own, it's my one weakness. It's my one thing. I mean, I don't do it that often. It's not like a, something I'm addicted to. I can stop when I want. All those silly things we say. It's my one thing. Like I'm upstanding in the community. I'm on the board of this. I'm in charge of these people at my work. I drink a lot of water during the day. It's my one thing. I say that because my one thing is coffee. It's my one weakness. We also say, and this is, this is delusional. This is delusional. I can handle this. I can handle this. <laughs> That's delusional. I am able to handle this. I'll just make sure I take flowers to my wife. I do that kind of stuff enough that she won't suspect anything. Or I can handle this by somehow making it up in another way. Uh, no one will ever know. I won't get in trouble. It only has consequences if you get caught. Lastly, it's just my situation. Nobody else knows how hard it is to be me. My situation is, is exceptional to everybody else's. I mean, we say these things when we're fed by the pain and, the, and, and fueled by the anger and hurt of our lives. I don't care. I deserve this. It's my one weakness. I can handle this. No one will ever know. It's just my situation. Listen, friends, you cannot manage sin. You cannot manage sin. 
Mother Teresa couldn't manage her own sin. It is infinitely impossible for a human being other than Jesus himself to manage sin. Being a slave to sexual sin is like, it's like swimming in a sea of sewage, but you have no idea that's the case. You think you're on some clear tropical island oasis with calm, cool waters, enjoying the sun, not a care in the world, thinking my pleasure is my, my goal in life, my physical pleasure, getting my warm fuzzies emotionally met through physical pleasure, when actually you are a slave. You're swimming in a sea of sewage and you don't even know it. Which is to say, fear, fear for your soul if you know that I'm talking about you. Because that's a sign you're not hearing. You're not hearing from God. Your heart is hardened. Your conscience is seared. Which is why, number four, we have to repent. There's not a way to manage it else. There's nowhere else, no other way to, 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 to manage sin. It has to be managed for us. And the key to unlocking that through Jesus is repentance. Repentance. Repentance actually ushers forth in change. It's real easy for us to think of repentance as something that we mentally do, that we emotionally do, like I want to do what's good and right now. Well, that's, that's good. That's the right trajectory. Uh, but repentance ushers forth in actual change towards the end of, in this case, purity of heart and mind. 2 Corinthians 7.10 gives us a little model for this. It says, Godly grief produces repentance. Godly grief produces repentance. There is such a thing as human grief. There are two kinds of grief. One is godly, one is human. Human grief is, I'm sorry that I did this. (laughs) Meanwhile, the other person's like, "Uh, no, you're not. Or, I'm sorry that you misunderstood what I said. That's human grief. Godly grief produces a change. It wakes us up to the consequences of our sin. Human grief is just further rationalization. Godly grief produces an actual change in heart that results in action, results in taking tangible steps, practical steps, intentionally putting up bounds where you need them, intentionally going to somebody you trust and saying, I have this I have this sexual sin problem that I'm struggling with and I, I cannot beat it myself. I need you to pray with me, to help me, to hold me accountable. Repentance means something like that. So if you're, if you're stuck in this place of sexual sin and you can't get out because you're going to lose if it's just based on your own willpower. <laughs> Do something intentional, practical. Next week, we're going to talk a lot about uh, some steps that God gives us to work our way out of sexual sin, of being stuck in those places. To be stuck in those places is to not see forward progress in your relationship with God. And if that's you because of sexual sin, consider yourself warned that 
the, the trajectory of that. The trajectory of that is not a good place. Uh, two things as we end here. Uh, we have a poll online that's on Facebook page, and uh, we'll keep it up there for a little while. You can anonymously post some questions. We're going to have some question and answer time. Uh, we don't have time to do that today. I'm going to go ahead and post some uh, answers to that on Facebook. Uh, we'll do it in the 3C Live video update as well. And uh, maybe we'll have some time next week to do that. We've already got four or five questions on there like, uh, what do I do uh, when my wife uh, rejects my advances and uh, says she can't or doesn't want to, to change? What do I do? Uh, there's a question there about uh, if sexual purity and intimacy is just for the bounds of marriage, what does, and the words I believe are, what does a chronically single person do in that circumstance uh, when the only righteous way to fulfill those needs is in the bounds of marriage? Those are important questions. There are a couple other tough ones like, uh, what do I do if I can't stop? Those kinds of things. Uh, we'll answer those on Facebook and in the video update. Second thing I want to do is I want to just end this way. We're going to have a time of uh, just some quiet time to do business with God here. I'll end in prayer in just a moment. We're just going to spend a, a minute or so because, listen, friends, if, if this isn't a problem for you, and for some of you it is, but if this isn't a problem for you, then, then you are gifted with the resources and the ability as a, as a mature uh, believer who doesn't have a problem with this or who has beaten this to help those who do not. Please, 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 don't go away from here thinking, well, pornography is not a problem for me. I've never had an affair. I don't lust after such and such. I don't read romantic novels I shouldn't. Don't, don't go from here justifying yourself self-righteously as if, as if there's nothing for you to do. In fact, there, there is a lot of work for you to do. If you are a disciple maker, if you're a mature believer in Christ, if sexual sin is not a problem for you, then you need to be getting with people who are struggling with this and helping them through it. Where else are they supposed to go? huge responsibility for all of us in this, to be a community of people that takes it seriously, extending the grace and the mercy of God to others so this can be something that doesn't, uh, that doesn't sear consciences and harden hearts. So we're going to take just a little minute here of silence. I'll end in prayer. Uh, let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Let God tell you uh, where you need to be doing something practical as a part of uh, what He's doing in the world to solve this and to help others. Let's go ahead and take just a moment here.